Mind Vibe, a mental health podcast for everyone. Since our first episode in 2016, we have been sharing stories of recovery, engaging with experts, and tackling the stigma associated with mental illness. The Mind Vibe podcast is produced by Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences and is available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Mindvine Podcast. Uh, my name is Daryl Mathers and I'm your host. And today we're talking mindfulness. And in mental health, mindfulness is kind of a new term, uh, but also in life. Uh, we've heard a lot about it uh, just in society and people using it in all facets of their personal and professional lives. And to learn a lot more about mindfulness, we have a special guest, Greg Samuelson. Greg's a RN in our York Region Community Clinic. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. And the one thing, actually, how we connected is I was looking for an expert on mindfulness, and you have it posted on your uh, intranet profile uh, right uh, prominently about your experience with mindfulness, and uh, you know, come to learn that um, how deeply it's connected to your life, uh, both the work you do and uh, in your private life. And maybe you could start by um, just explaining, you know, in in plain terms, what mindfulness is and how you kind of got connected to it. Hmm. Okay. So mindfulness is about how we relate to our present moment experience. So every moment that we are awake, we are seeing things, hearing things, uh, touching things, and so on with all of our senses. And we relate to this in a certain way. Often we're off lost in thoughts and we're not really that connected to what's going on right here, right now. So mindfulness is about really intentionally bringing your mind back to this present moment, what's happening right here, right now. Um, so there are some definitions. The most popular definition is from a fellow in the United States, uh, John Kabat-Zinn. He started a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is the first program that sort of took these ideas that came from Eastern meditation and philosophy into modern psychotherapy. Um, and he talks about mindfulness as being paying attention to your present moment experience intentionally and without judgment. Your experience in mindfulness, so you've been a, working in mental health you know, uh, for quite some time, before mindfulness entered your life and after. Uh, so what, um, you know, what started your journey and what drew you towards uh, kind of the mindfulness area? Hmm. So yeah, I started working as a nurse in 1989. I graduated, so quite some time, over 30 years now, um, working in mental health that whole time in different areas of mental health, inpatient settings, outpatient settings, ACT teams, as a community treatment co coordinator, um, lots of different areas. But uh, then when I was well into my career, I became interested in meditating. And mindfulness comes from the meditating world as far as talking about how you pay attention to your experience. And then a few years into my meditation, um, not that it was one session of meditation, <laughs> but a few years into my practice of meditation. That's being quite present for a very long time. <laughs> well, there are stories of meditation about these teachers like sat facing a wall in a cave for nine years. And it's like, I wasn't aspiring to that. But a few years into my practice of meditation, somebody brought some articles to the temple I was meditating at talking about mindfulness-based stress reduction. The people were using these techniques and these ideas that we used in meditation to help people 
with mental health issues and to help people with anxiety and stress and so on. So I got kind of excited because I was like, okay, this work I've been doing helping people with mental health issues and then this personal work I've been doing in meditation sort of came together and it was really nice for me and it was uh, interesting. And then from there, practicing and doing some different trainings uh, in mindfulness and mental health, um, learning about how to present mindfulness-based stress reduction groups, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is a um, group program that is for depression, originally for relapse and depression. Um, and then that led to me in 2016 completing a year-long uh, certificate program of mindfulness and psychotherapy, which was quite good. In that program, we had the opportunity to have presentations and learn from all of the leading figures from the different areas of mindfulness mental health. So one person who was a leader in addictions and mindfulness, one person who was adapting mindfulness for use with anxiety, depression, and so on. So that was a really great experience too. Before we kind of get into a little further about your work in mindfulness, um, in that period where you discovered it uh, in your personal life before it kind of entered your professional life, uh, what difference did it make in your life at that point in time? Well, it helps you to be more aware of what's happening, but not just what's happening around you. You do get one benefit of uh, mindful awareness is that you do have a richer experience of what's happening in the present moment because you're more, well, you're just more aware of it. You're less off in thoughts. Uh, so that was one benefit. I think you also become more attuned to sort of what's the interior weather like. What's happening to me emotionally? These things that are happening outside of me, um, how do they resonate with me? How am I interpreting them? How does how I'm interpreting them change how I feel? And so then over time, you still have happiness and sadness and good times and bad times, but you develop a degree of what in the meditating world we would call equanimity, where it's just like when, when good things happen, you're able to take them in, really enjoy them, soak them in, but when really difficult things happen, you don't feel good, but they don't knock you off balance quite as much emotionally. You feel bad, but you don't sort of add extra layers of suffering on top of that because you're saying, oh, I don't want this experience. This shouldn't be happening. Well, it is happening. So how can we respond to what's happening right now? You know, when you refer to like richer experiences by living in the present moment, you know, more often than not, uh, I guess the residual effects would be, you know, potentially stronger relationships, fulfillment, and, and work, and like absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and that's one way. Uh, so they say there are basically three ways that mindfulness can help in the psychotherapy relationship, and one of the ways is that if the therapist has a mindfulness practice, then they should be able to be better attuned and present with the other person. So, I mean, right now, I could be very nervous about the fact we're doing a podcast. I could be aware that there are cameras and lights and everything. Or I could still know those things are happening, but not have too much of my mind there and be just having a conversation with you. And I, and I like, as you said that, I'm like, that's great for every, I guess, those situations where you are outside your comfort zone. I guess it's a, like a base, you know, like whether it's something like you coming in here today or somebody going to write an exam or do these things that life requires of us, uh, these, these stressful, anx anxious moments that are part of living life. And it's a, it sounds like a, you know, a tool to help you cope in those situations. Absolutely. I do think that's right. You can, you can also recognize that, oh, my mind's going off into these anxious thoughts. 
And then you can sort of bring yourself back to, okay, but there's nothing really difficult or bad happening right now. You can bring yourself back to the present moment. It does ground you. And it's interesting that you talk about like that, you know, that sort of secure base, that home you can come back to. Because even in meditation and mindfulness, we talk about that, you know, often mindfulness is first done by paying attention to the physical sensations to let you know you're breathing in and breathing out. That's a very simple way to start tuning into the present moment. Something we're doing every moment of every day, whether we're asleep or awake, but we're not usually aware of it, right? Like how much of the day, what percentage would you say, are you aware of the fact that you're breathing? Yeah, less than less than the 0.5 percent. Yeah. So unless we have a cold or we're exerting ourselves, yes, we're not usually yeah. aware of it, right? Yeah. Um, so we're bringing something that's always happening into present moment awareness, yeah. and that's just an example of how much we're not aware of what's going on around us all the time. Uh, there's one idea that's talked on in mindfulness, which is autopilot. So you've probably had the experience of driving. I know. Uh, oh, this happened to me just the other day. I was driving somewhere and I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna go this way because I'm going to this place. My mind didn't take me that way. My mind made a left turn and I realized, oh, I'm, I'm headed to the office even though that's not where I'm going right now, <laughs> right? So I was on autopilot. Mm -hmm. I was just sort of acting out of habit, responding out of habit. And so another thing that mindfulness does is it helps us realize when we're reacting out of habit and we can sort of try to step out of that. We can try to do new things. Mindfulness is, you know, a really, you know, hot topic, I guess, right now is, or trendy, I guess, might be a better word. It's something that, uh, you know, you see on social media, people referencing it and conversations, uh, you know, and like, forget about the necessarily the, the work we do here. But mm -hmm. um, why, what is it about our world maybe today that has made mindfulness, um, you know, a little bit more interesting to people? Is it you know, is it the fact that our, you know, the world is changing? Demands seem to be greater. Uh, obviously, what we're going through now with the economy and uh, financial pressures, like, is there things about the world um, that are making mindfulness a little bit more attractive to people? I think mindfulness is a good response to what's happening in the world right now because when you think about, I don't know, I've only had a smartphone in my pocket for, I don't know, the last 12, 15 years, something like that. But so much of our attention, there are so many demands on our attention, right? Our attention is being drawn in so many different directions. We're getting pinged by an email here, Instagram here. There's something on the news that seems terrible. And all of these things that our brain interprets as threats coming in, right? Terrible things happening in the world, things that seem really urgent and important. Coming back to the present moment can really give you a chance to sort of not necessarily leave that behind, but sort of step out of it for a moment sort of come back to some place where, you know, again, right now it's just us in a room and things are actually pretty calm and peaceful if we're not thinking about all of those things. As somebody who practices, you know, who meditates and, and incorporates mindfulness in your life, like, can you give us a sense of what your day looks like just in terms of um, how you incorporate mindfulness? And I just think, like, as you were talking and you're talking about autopilot and different things, and I think about all the things I do in my life where I'm preoccupied, Right where I'm like I might be going to the fridge to get something for one of my kids, but I'm thinking about whether it's work or something going on in personal life or something like that. Right, I'm not I'm not necessarily engaged in what I'm doing and what I will be interacting with my child. Right, and so just you know it just made me think of those experiences where we're just you know going through the motions for lack of a better Absolutely. term. Absolutely. 
So, you know, like uh, to, uh, for you, I'm, you know, I assume you, you try to have as many present moments in your life as possible, right? So how do you incorporate that to make sure that you're getting the most out of these moments in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are different ways people can, and it doesn't necessarily mean outwardly doing anything different. It just means being engaged with what you're doing when you're doing it. So it could even be at work, sitting at my keyboard, typing on the computer, but actually just being fully engaged with sitting there typing on the computer. Recognizing when my mind goes somewhere else and saying, okay, no, let's come back and just do this. We have all of these also transitional moments during our day where we could be mindful, but we're not usually. For instance, uh, at the hospital here, when you are walking from one place to another, you're not usually engaged with just noticing what it feels like to be walking down a hallway, right? You're usually, your mind is probably usually ahead of you mm -hmm. at the destination you're going to, thinking about the meeting you're going to, what you're gonna talk about, what's going to happen, thinking about what's happening later in your day. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean doing different things. It just means noticing where your mind has wandered and coming back. There's an idea in mindfulness uh, that's either called the mindfulness loop or the attention loop. So one mistake that people can make when they're initially teaching people about mindful awareness um, is, as I said before, it's usually the breath. People start with breath and body sensations. And even when we're looking at the breath, we don't want to be thinking about the fact we're breathing in and out. We want to notice the physical sensations that let us know that this process is happening. But what happens is, step number one in the mindfulness loop is we choose to place our attention somewhere. Step number two, what inevitably happens to everybody, and if you don't tell people that this happens, they think they're doing a bad job of being mindful. Step number two, your mind inevitably wanders off somewhere. That's what the mind does. It likes to look for stimulation, interesting things. If you're just sitting there looking at your breathing, at some point your mind is gonna go, this is boring. <laughs> this is boring. I want something to do. I wanna consume some information. I want something. So step number one, place your attention somewhere. Step number two, your mind wanders, where we try to get ahead of other people. Step number three, we notice that our mind's wandered off somewhere. And then step number four, we gently and without any judgment or self-criticism, bring it back to what's going on right here, right now. And we do that step as many times as needed. We expect that our mind's gonna wander, but we get good at noticing that we're caught up in thoughts, that our mind's wandering, and bringing it back to the present moment. So it's like going to the gym and lifting a weight, right? You don't uh, lift a weight once, and you never have to do it again. So that mind wandering, bringing it back, do that as many times as you need to. That's actually part of the skill, right? So one of the benefits of mindfulness is being able to regulate your attention, being able to choose where you place your attention, right? So if you're noticing and bringing it back, that's just part of that process. In terms of the work you do, you know, you've done a great job of illustrating, you know, how mindfulness can work in everybody's lives, right? In everyday lives, just um, trying to survive in society. Uh, Ontario Shores, you know, deals with um, complex mental illness. So, you know, when somebody's coming through your doors, you know, they've um, in all likelihood been to another organization before, um, probably have uh, one or two diagnoses, have lived experience that uh, many of us who, who have not uh, gone down that road might not even be able to fathom in terms mm -hmm. of the severity of, of their mental health issue. So when you talk about that population of, of people who are, who are really struggling, how 
uh, does mindfulness get incorporated into their treatment plan? So whatever model of psychotherapy, however you're trying to help people, I think that a, an initial component, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, whether you're explicitly saying you're using mindfulness or not, there's an element of helping people increase their awareness of what's happening, right? With whatever it is, whether it's, um, you know, components of an emotional reaction, like something happens, our anxiety goes up, and we try to help people understand, like, what's that process? What's actually happening? Like, seeing the bits of that process clearly. Same thing with depression or sadness, right? Something happens outside of us and we become sad. We become, uh, you know, difficulty in a relationship or a fractured relationship, and we have some sadness or depression. So seeing that clearly and increasing awareness of what's going on. So we can do different exercises in therapy that have to do with noticing those things. So again, we'll often just work in the beginning on doing something like mindfulness of breathing. Um, and that a nice side effect of mindfulness of breathing is even though it's not specifically for relaxation, we have other exercises that are breath focused and body focused that have to do with just calming and relaxing the mind and the body. Um, but a side effect of mindfulness is people tend to feel more relaxed. Not necessarily. Some people, when they start paying attention to what's going on, it can actually cause a little bit of ramping up of agitation or anxiety. But then we move from just noticing the breath, noticing body sensations. Um, you can actually do a practice called a body scan where you just sort of like notice from head to toe and then from toe to head again, what are the sensations I'm noticing in the different parts of my body? And just that practice on its own helps people to learn to move their attention from one thing to another thing to another thing. So there's research evidence that says that if somebody is anxious or depressed, they tend to get hooked on the thoughts that are about the thing that's causing them to be anxious, the thoughts about the thing that they're feeling sad about. And so learning to be able to move your attention from one thing to another can be very helpful. Learning to sit with the mindful experience of, okay, so this is what anxiety feels like in my body. So there are a few things we're doing there. We're actually noticing what is the embodied experience of an emotion, right? Every emotion has a certain energy, sensation, location associated with it. If you think about when you feel sad, and like you probably have a sense of what that feels like in your body. Some people describe like a slowing down, a heaviness, anxiety, sort of that ramped up energy, but it's sort of like unfocused, you don't know what to do with it. Anger, again, a more energized, um, activated emotion, uh, but a different feeling than the activated emotion of anxiety. But if people find one of those emotions distressing, what they tend to do is not want to feel it, right? So they'll tend to distract or numb out with something or do something else or look for something to soothe and comfort them that may not be the healthiest thing. Um, but if you are able in session with a person to help them feel safe to sit with that emotion, be able to feel it, like what does that emotion feel like in my mind and my body, then that's actually an exposure to that emotion. And if we expose ourselves to feeling things that are difficult, if we let ourselves feel them, we actually over time increase our capacity to be with that difficult emotion. So over time, it causes less distress. The emotion may not change, but we may be less distressed by it. You build a capacity to manage it. Yeah, to manage it. And if we're able to be with it, so I mean, one of the competencies we need to be able to respond 
uh, mindfully to something with compassion is we have to be able to tolerate it and stay with it to figure out how we can respond to it. So if you have a situation where you feel really anxious, the language I would use in therapy, I wouldn't say, oh, you're really anxious, mm -hmm. because that's probably not going to help you feel less mm -hmm. anxious. But I, I talk a lot about parts. So I might say, oh, there's a part of you coming up that's feeling really anxious in this situation. And then I talk about, so if we're able to stay with and be with that part and see what that part's feeling, so how can we respond to that part in a way that's helpful to it? So you do have to have that tolerance to be with that feeling to be able to figure out how am I going to respond to it, how to help that part you know, settle a little bit, feel a little bit better. As you begin the uh, therapy with somebody, um, who knows what their story is coming into your office, what's the general reaction when you start, whether you flat out talk about mindfulness or you start using some of the... Um, the language and actions associated with it, uh, is there, you know, for lack of a better term, like is there a sales job that needs to be done a little bit uh, with people because they're not familiar with it or they, you know, they think it's something um, else or they don't have a familiarity with it? Like what's the reaction generally? I think these days a lot of people have heard about mindfulness. Um, I talk a lot in therapy about mindfulness and about compassion. Uh, and people have heard both of these words these days, but I think it's important to have a discussion with them about, um, you know, so if you came into therapy with me, I might say, you know, we might use some mindfulness. What's your understanding of mindfulness? What have you heard about mindfulness? Because it's really important in therapy that we have a shared understanding of what we're doing. So yes, before I do something that's like a mindfulness-based exercise to somebody, what we call an experiential exercise, we're not gonna just go into it with no talking. Mm -hmm. We're gonna talk about like, okay, this is what we might do, this is why it's helpful, and so on. And even if we're talking about um, you know, responding to di distressing emotions with compassion, I'm gonna ask you, well, what's your understanding of compassion? What do you think of when I say the word compassion? What are the good things about compassion? And responding to emotional difficulties with compassion. Are there things that are tricky about it? Are there things that might not be good about it? You know, so it's good that we talk about it, have a shared understanding, have some definitions in common, so that then we can sort of move forward and do the exercises together. How would you rate people's ability to define mindfulness? Like, is it close to what your understanding of it is, or is there uh, some gaps to be filled? I think it's pretty close. I think a lot of people these days come up with a lot of the like really important elements that it's uh, you know paying attention to your present moment experience. I think the part that people often forget or haven't heard is that the part about non-judgment that we're trying. And again, non-judgment doesn't mean that there are no judgments coming up, right? It means that we sort of notice when our mind's making judgments and we decide then, okay, is that something I want to file? So every time we decide, I like this thing better than I like this thing. Like if I ask you, do you like chocolate or vanilla? What's, mm -hmm. Which one do you like better, mm -hmm. right? Whichever one you answer, that's a judgment. It's like, I like this more than I like this. But again, there are ideas from traditional mindfulness about, so things we like, things we enjoy, things that we find pleasant, we, we want more of those mm -hmm. in our life, right? And so we tend to chase after them. And then we tend to have some sadness when they go away. So if you said, well, I don't know, Daryl, which one? Chocolate or vanilla? Say chocolate. Chocolate, okay. So I'm gonna give you some chocolate ice cream now, but then you're gonna eat it and it's gonna be gone. Hmm. 
So you might feel a little sadness that like, oh, look, my ice cream's gone. Unless it generally happens, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. So then also recognizing that all of this is natural. Like mm -hmm. we learn to notice when we're uh, applying mindful awareness as well that, so the first thing that happens, the way we evaluate our present moment experience is we evaluate everything without, this isn't a conscious process, but we evaluate everything as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mm -hmm. Right? Whether it's a body sensation, whether it's the temperature of the air in this room, whether it's what my boss said to me earlier today, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mm. Right? So just learning to recognize that like, oh, look what my mind's doing. Look, look how my mind is interpreting what's going on right now. Because we have our experience of the world, right? What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and what comes up in our mind. But then we have how we relate to that experience and how we interpret it. So part of what we're doing also is learning to notice that we relate to our experience in a certain way. We want more of some things, less of other things, and those affect us emotionally. And when we were talking earlier, we, were, we mentioned that healthcare um, outside of mental health is starting to notice um, and implement mindfulness in other areas. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know the, the example you mentioned earlier, but also like, where do you see the future of mindfulness in, 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 in healthcare, not just mental health care? Mm. Yeah, so actually, when mindfulness started being incorporated into Western therapy, it was John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction at uh, University of Massachusetts. And what he did, he was somebody who had practiced meditation in a couple of different traditions in um, Korea and Koan Zen, which is the same one that I practice, but also some... Uh, mindfulness-based meditation that was in the, I think in the Connecticut area in the US. And what he did is he said to all of the doctors who were treating people for medical issues, uh, whether it was cardiac issues, dermatologists treating people for psoriasis, um, people being treated for chronic pain, he said to the doctors, I want to see the people where you've done everything you can do as far as medical treatments, and they're still having a level of distress and difficulty with what's happening, send them to me. And he started these groups on mindfulness-based stress reduction where he combined um, teaching some ideas in sort of a group format and a workshop and then doing practices that are mainly around noticing uh, the fact that you're breathing in and breathing out and noticing body sensations, which actually pretty long meditations, like 45 minutes at a time, mm -hmm. which is a lot for most people. Um, but what he learned is that one benefit of mindfulness is when you can't change your present moment experience, you can change the way you're relating to it. So for instance, with mindfulness for chronic pain, there's a um, doctor in Toronto who developed a group program for mindfulness for chronic pain, Jackie Gardner-Nix. And um, in the research they've done in that, they found that they'll have people in the beginning rate uh, the severity of their pain, you know, from zero to 10. Then they'll rate the distress from their pain from zero to 10. And over the course of a program of mindfulness for chronic pain, the pain may not change, but the level of distress comes down because people are learning to relate to their experience in a different way. So that's one benefit. And so then people realize that, for example, with people we work with who experience hearing voices, that for some people, when they have distressing voices and they're treated by medication for some people, those voices might go away. For some people, those voices might diminish a certain amount, but they might still be there, 
right? For some people, it may only be a little bit of effect that the medication has on voices. So then these same principles apply to that experience, right? So if the experience isn't going to change, then can we do this work and change how we relate to the experience? Can we learn to sort of view them in a slightly different way? It sounds like we're just the beginning of discovering uh, what mindfulness or the impact mindfulness can make in those areas. Yeah, and there's a lot of great research being done. So again, in the States, um, there are some researchers who are doing wonderful work on actually doing like functional MRIs and brain scans of, of meditators and people doing different practices and seeing what areas of the brain you know, these practices light up and how it's helpful. Uh, so then actually figuring out what are the most effective practices. There's some people doing interesting work in that way. Uh, and there are also people in Europe doing uh, work on um, how mindfulness, meditation, and certain breathing patterns affect what they call heart rate variability. And um, I won't get too much into it because it's complicated and I don't even understand <laughs> it that well. But heart rate variability is a measure of how you're able to respond to things emotionally. So they find that if you breathe in a certain way, and coincidentally, it's really similar to the way that meditators have traditionally been breathing because over, you know, two and a half thousand years, people have figured out a few things as far as how things work. Um, but that actually your heart rate variability improves. You know, so it's, it, it's interesting, just the breathing by itself. So um, Niccolo uh, Petrucci, who's a researcher in Italy in the world of... Um, compassion-focused therapy, he did a, um, a research study where he had people just practice this breathing rate called soothing rhythm breathing for a few weeks, and whether they were experiencing anxiety or depression, just by sitting and practicing this breathing, they felt less anxious and less depressed at the end of the study. Very simple technique. It's the whole th topic is like fascinating because uh, I think one of the things that makes it fascinating is the uh, the scope, right? The, the the impact that this can have on on somebody who's uh, seemingly living a normal, healthy life, but um, could help improve certain aspects of it. And then, obviously, people who are whether you know you just mentioned the pain aspect, but uh, people who are experiencing significant mental health issues, like it's just you know it seems like um, a lot of different opportunities and possibilities. As you're explaining this, you know I think about it in my role as a as a parent, like. Um, mm. you know, passing something like this onto my children or giving the opportunity to learn about it, it would seem incredibly uh, valuable for young people to kind of understand themselves and how they react to things a certain way and being able to control certain things a little bit better as they start to go through the stages of life. Absolutely, I agree. And there are organizations looking at that. So if you think about it, we teach children and young people so many things you know, math, science, literature, um, and all good things. But teaching skills that are about being able to regulate your emotions, have emotional resilience, be able to get through difficult things, we don't teach much of that in schools, and it would be really valuable. So there are different organizations and foundations. For instance, the um, Compassionate Mind Foundation in the UK actually has a program for compassion in schools. Um, I think one difficulty in bringing programs like this into schools is that it's just it's really difficult to get a school system to accept something that, that is newish. Um, so I think the way they've done it in the UK is they've done the training for teachers, uh, 
and then being interested to see if they do this compassionate mind training with teachers, then how does that fil filter down to students feeling better? If the mm -hmm. teachers are, are actually enacting and using these different uh, ideas and strategies. But there certainly are different uh, foundations that have tried to go into schools and teach mindful awareness and different groups. And um, I think it's been a little bit easier in private schools mm -hmm. where like a school can make a decision rather than like mm -hmm. having to introduce some, something I, to a whole school. Exactly, or yeah, exactly. Like but it is huge. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, lots of uh, the clients that I work with in psychotherapy um, will want to teach some of these things to their children. Mm -hmm. Or they'll say, well, another thing would be if I said, you know, Daryl, I don't know, how old are your kids, Daryl? Uh, Going to be 14, 11, and 8. Okay, so I assume there's a lot of driving around, taking people different places, because yeah. none of them are driving age yet. No, that's right. So if I said, you know, Daryl, well, you obviously, you have a lot of free time where <laughs> you could just sit and meditate, right? Mm -hmm. and, and where your kids aren't around. Yeah. And you say, no, I, this is going to be hard to fit into my schedule, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one thing I used to do when my kids were in school is I would just, I would drive my kids to school. I would go park in the parking lot of the grocery store that was near the school. I would sit and meditate for 20 minutes. Then I'd, you know, go do the first thing I had to do if I had mm -hmm. time. But there are some wonderful apps as well. Uh, so we can use our smartphones for good uh, <laughs> and for mindful yeah. awareness. Um, so there's a wonderful one. The government of Australia actually has some wonderful apps that they've put out because in Australia, uh, mental health is a centralized thing. Mm. So they'll fund different projects. And one is called Smiling Mind. And Smiling Mind is a wonderful resource because for adults, it has a basic mindfulness course that has uh, 36 guided mindfulness meditations, and it's absolutely free. Mm. But the other thing Smiling Mind has is it has mindfulness exercises for every age group. So you can go on the app and find, you know, three to six years old, six to nine years old, and, you know, every age group, and you can sit and listen to the recording of this guided mindfulness practice with your child. So you can get benefit, they can get benefit. So it's a really good way to introduce this to them, and in fun ways. So when they're doing like that um, body scan I was talking about earlier, where you're just noticing from head to toe, toe to head, what are the sensations in the body, they'll do like a bubble thing where it's like you're imagining that there are bubbles sort of going, that your awareness is bubbles basically going over your body noticing what's there. So they make it fun for kids to learn. We talk about kids and mental health and uh, where mindfulness fits in it. And it seems to me in my unprofessional opinion, just like, you know, being a dad and seeing, you know, my kids interact with the world, that they are more in tune with mental health, certainly than you know I was at, at that age. Like they understand um, to a degree um, uh, what you know what mental health is, and that they have to look after themselves. And there are and they like my older ones do access um, you know meditations and different things too. Like there is a greater mm -hmm. understanding certainly than I you know, and I think it's it's a lot of it's organically. It's like what happens some of the conversations we have in our house, but also conversations that are happening in school and. And people being less, I guess, secretive about some of the uh, perils of life and things that uh, impact our emotions. So I wonder if, like, as you were, you know, describing it, it's almost like I feel like mindfulness could be like that, an extension of what has already happened uh, in terms of creating this environment for young people. Um, we've done a good job with Bell Let's Talk and saying, hey, it's okay to be you know, mildly depressed and anxious, but there are other issues and maybe, you know, mindfulness is one way for people, uh, young people to really get that much more in tune with their emotions. It would seem to be a pretty good fit for, you know, what we've been teaching 
so far. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's very true. And some young people will very much resonate with the very, you know, more traditional ways of doing mindfulness, like sitting with your eyes open or closed and paying attention to breath and body sensations and what's happening in your mind. But for some people, that's not the way, right? Some people just, it won't resonate with them. They're not going to be interested in that. So, I mean, you can also do more active mindfulness, right? I was talking earlier about you can be aware of what's happening when you're walking down the hallway. Mm -hmm. You can just do different things and be aware of what's happening. Even when I just gesture with my hand, I can just be really aware that mm -hmm. like, oh, my hand's moving through space. I can feel that my mm -hmm. hand's actually moving through air, mm -hmm. something I'm not usually aware of. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to extend these ideas, finding how that idea of mindfulness fits for that person though, I think is really important too. Mm -hmm. And that's important in the therapeutic relationship as well because I can't just say, you know what, I'm gonna teach you mindfulness in the way that it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I have to figure out what fits for you, mm -hmm. what makes sense for you. I have to have that flexibility as a therapist to know like how can I introduce this idea in a way that's going to be interesting to you, it's gonna resonate with you, and it's gonna be useful to you in the end. And sustainable, right? That they're gonna take it with them after your session's over. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> For people that are interested in learning more about mindfulness, you, you mentioned a couple apps uh, that people can access. Are there podcasts or other resources that you would recommend that people uh, listen to or engage with to kind of get a, a greater sense of, of what mindfulness is all about? There are lots of wonderful podcasts out there. I don't really listen to a lot of mindfulness podcasts these days. Uh, the ones I listen to tend to be more sort of traditional Zen Buddhism and talks in that because that's sort of what I'm interested in. But if you search for it, there are lots of good things. There are lots of really good, um, oh, guided meditations by teachers. Um, Insight Timer is one website, and there's an app that goes along with it as well, where uh, there are teachers from all over the world that have posted their meditations there. One thing that is wonderful about uh, today is that same technology that can sort of like fracture our attention, take it everywhere else. It's also made things really, really accessible. Mm. So there are wonderful teachers that are you know, incredibly famous, like there's a, a French monk in the Tibetan tradition, Matthew Ricard, who has talked a lot about you know, compassion and applying compassion, and he's thought to be a very good teacher, very good meditator, and you know, 20 years ago, you would have had to travel to France <laughs> to sit and listen mm -hmm. to Matthew Ricard, and you would have heard him like two, three times, and you go home, right? Now you can listen to his talks all the time. I was listening to a talk driving here today by a, um, a British American who practices in a Japanese Zen lineage <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's in the mountains in California. And I mean, you could attend Zoom meditation with him weekly if you'd like to <laughs> these days during the pandemic. Um, so these things are really accessible. Insight Timer is a good place. You just have to be a little discerning because there are lots of really good quality teachers with really good you know, credentials and background and teaching behind them. And then there, of course, like with anything, anybody can post online. So you have to have a little bit of an idea um, of what you're looking at. There's some really good foundational books out there as well. Um, if you do a little bit of searching online, you can sort of tell who the teachers are who sort of started this thing uh, in in North America, mm -hmm. like who sort of went to the East, brought it back, and started practicing it, and and they're all available out there. It's really nice. I would imagine in some of it too, you need to find, you know, 
it presented in the way that works for you, right? The teacher that works for you. Absolutely. You know, the content that yeah. is specific for you. Yeah, there's an old saying in Zen, which is uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm. And so, but there is this idea, yeah. I mean, if, if somebody really wants to like delve deeply into it and actually practice meditation, uh, the way I started with that is I just went and visited different centers, different groups and found the place where there was the teacher that resonated with me. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is my place. This is my teacher. And now I've been practicing with that same teacher for about 17 years. Mm -hmm. um, he's now an almost 90 year old Korean Zen master. And uh, you know, so I've appreciated that relationship with him. And I do think it's important, uh, you know, if you get into doing it more deeply in the meditation world, it's like also, you then practice with a group of people, right? So you sit and practice with other people. It's valuable to do this practice sometimes on your own, sometimes with other people. Um, and in the mental health setting too, you can do it uh, with your therapist, you can do it on your own between sessions, you can do it with a group of other people who are also receiving services from the same place. And it feels just a little different and you get a little something different. With a group of people, you feel like that support of the group and that connectedness with the group. And that can be really nice as well. Sounds like lots of options for different stages and different interests as you, as you work your way through. Well, fascinating to talk to you. Um, you know, very insightful and I think uh, really timely with everything going on and uh, hearing, you know, more and more about mindfulness and you've really given people uh, a lot to think about and resources to, to access and really appreciate you being here today. No, thank you. It's nice to talk to you.